Support for KQED Podcasts comes from the Exploratorium. Don't miss Extraordinary, a new exhibition of incredible art made from everyday stuff, like shoes, light bulbs, and Lego pieces. Opening June 13th at Pier 15. Tickets at exploratorium.edu extra. Take your Wi-Fi further with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity. With fast speeds and reliable coverage, home just got even sweeter with the Xfinity 10G network. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. In her new book, Jenny O'Dell, the author of the best-selling How to Do Nothing, introduces us to many new ways to think about time. She gives us a German word, Zeitgeber, which means something that organizes and patterns your time, like a kid's nap schedule or the NPR clock or the traffic on the bridge. And I don't know how I ever lived without this word. Drawing on a huge variety of philosophers, indigenous traditions, and modes of thought, Odell encourages us to clock out, to stretch the concept of time, to see our days as something more than a spreadsheet of minutes to be filled in. Would it be possible, she writes, not to save and spend time, but to garden it by saving, inventing, and stewarding different rhythms of life? Jenny Odell's coming up after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. One lesson that emerges from Jenny O'Dell's new book, Saving Time, is that the rigid clock, that creation of capital and colonization, is but one of many overlapping ways to think about time. As we'll hear this hour, the bosses may want time to be money, but time is place, time is rocks, time is beans. I've never seen the many facets of this argument laid out the way O'Dell does it, but I've had a few times in my life where I came unpinned from the clock. When my wife got pregnant with our first child, I went on a walk into the Berkeley Hills, right up by where Claremont hits Grizzly Peak, and I found myself staring at a section of the hillside. The tectonics of our area had pushed the sedimentary rocks of the hills up and around so that their layers sat like books on a shelf. They were weathering quickly, so there was a pile of deep time on the ground near where I stood, and looking up, a eucalyptus, brought by colonization, but clearly quite at home, kept another kind of time, roots winding long and slow through the air and rock. And at that moment, I could hear my heart, the cars passing, and I knew somewhere there was a tiny bundle of cells dividing, and that some months later, there'd be a baby. All those things could coexist, did coexist, and Odell argues that dismantling the time-as-money complex is a crucial step in relearning to exist on a living world. Here to tell us more is the author of Saving Time, Discovering a Life Beyond the Clock, and How to Do Nothing, Resisting the Attention Economy, Jenny O'Dell. Welcome. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. Um, Jenny, I want to start by asking you about the space-time of the Bay Area for you. Like People often like to say that the Bay Area doesn't have seasons, which is almost like saying it's missing a key marker of time. But you disagree. (laughs) How did you come to think of this seasons question for the Bay? I think some of that was actually already happening in my last book, How to Do Nothing, um, because I'm talking about having a very close attention to a place. And I also talk about bioregionalism, this idea of being very familiar with your um, fellow inhabitants. Um, I'm from the Bay Area, so I've I've lived in it all my life. And I think starting with that book, I, I, 
I sort of started to realize how much there was that I hadn't noticed or that I hadn't really paid attention to, uh, which would allow me to think something like the Bay Area doesn't have seasons. <laughs> um, and um, what's really amazing to me is, is as you just sort of pay attention to things that are changing, you know, for example, in the spring, like which flowers come first or um, the buckeye trees that I write about going dormant in the summer, like you really realize that, um, you know, we may not have, our seasons don't feel the same way and they certainly don't, they aren't easily delineated into like the four seasons that everyone thinks of, uh, which is actually not even really mappable to a lot of places. But uh, in the Bay Area, it's like when when you think of it as more like stages or almost like, you know, micro seasons, if it helps to think of it that way, you, you realize that things are actually changing all the time. Yeah. I like plum flower season. I almost like the beginning of Brown Hill season, right? I mean, you can, <laughs> yeah. you can start to really see those. Um, you know, one of the organizing features of the book is this lovely little road trip that you take um, through the Bay Area. And it's just kind of you noticing things like you're describing, you know, human and social and animal, botanical, mineral. What were you doing with those sections of the book as distinct from the kind of more analytical sections where you're trying to recover these lost and maybe future senses of time? Yeah, I, I think some of that was, um, well, there were really two reasons. One is it's, we've had this story technology like forever, right? Of, of putting different parts of a story in different parts of the landscape. Like that's mm. a very old strategy for remembering things. Mm. So I, I think, you know, initially my, my hope was that by organizing the concepts in this way, it would help the reader navigate them but also remember them that you could Mm -hmm. sort of go on the trip again in your head but then I think as I was writing it something else that I noticed was that by having those kind of interludes interspersed throughout these you know maybe more abstract ideas it it's an argument that you can actually find concrete evidence of these histories and these ideas in the everyday like Mm -hmm. you can read about it you know in in a book or a paper but you can also just look around like you can look around and you can see that you live in the material world that was created by these histories. And I, that's kind of like a big part of what I'm trying to say about time in the book too, is that like, it's always, something is always happening. Something is always being created. And, you know, there's a, there's a view of time and the world in which like things are just kind of there, um, including the natural world and humans are like moving through it and doing things, but they're, they don't really exist in the same time. And here I'm really kind of trying to advocate for this idea of you know, everything being in time together. And as you look around, you can see, um, you can like see what has happened. Mm. I oftentimes for the show, listen to books, you know, audiobooks. And one of the greatest things is when you walk around while listening to the audiobook, you kind of fast, you can, you can remember where things happen in the book by fast forwarding and rewinding in your walk, like through that space. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I, I had an experience, you know, that, that organizing principle of the road trip was not something that was present at the beginning when I started writing. But at some point in the middle, I went on a walk with um, a good friend of mine who's lived in the same small town in the Santa Cruz mountains for 50 years. Um, And we were walking around and our conversation was kind of a mix of, you know, him telling about all of his memories. And I was talking about my memories, but he was also pointing things out about the town to me, which obviously Mm. his memories are very mixed in with that. But later, as I was trying to recall our conversation, I would just go on the walk again in my head. So mm, yes. I think it's a, it's a pretty like, a common strategy. Yeah, yeah. Um, let's make a stop on this road trip at a place that's very special to you, 
great America. Special is not exactly the right word, but you, great America is where you start to really explore, you know, this kind of key framing concept for the book around time being money for particular people at particular times in history. Um, take us to great America and, and break it down for us. Yeah. So I, uh, I worked at great America as a caricature artist for two summers uh, when I was, it was between high school and college, I guess. And, um, and there's actually a scan of my employee ID in the book. <laughs> so you could see my sort of like Daria-esque, like bored teenage <laughs> face. Um, but I, I brought it up in the, in a chapter about leisure because I was trying to explain why I, I personally have such a distaste for what has been called the experience economy. Um, and the experience economy is just what it sounds like. It's, you know, um, buying the idea experiences, of buying yeah. an experience. Yeah. So, um, you, you pay to have an experience and obviously that, that could be very literal or it could be something more vague. Like, you know, I, I think like Instagram participates a lot in the experience economy and this idea of like selling a lifestyle of selling, like, um, you know, a way, a way of a supposed way of being. Um, and so I, I mentioned that in that chapter because, you know, it's like, I, I worked in a place where people were paying to have an experience, obviously. Um, and I was obviously not having the same experience as an employee. And then I would leave the park and I would just sort of see the backsides of all these facades and have the very teenage complaint that like everything is so fake, right? Like I live in a, sub I was growing up in San Jose. So like everything in the suburb kind of felt the same way as the theme park. Mm. And, and I'm writing about this kind of like this desire to like find find an authentic encounter but that as i'm looking for that like all i find are new new things to spend money on like new things yeah. to buy and that like time is time and experience like unfortunately are so easily incorporated into that right well and you also just note that time in the way that we think of it as a bunch of little boxes or as you know 1400 hours or whatever the kind of framing that people have this kind of quantifiable uh, discrete measures of time that we kind of fill up like spreadsheet um, that this is actually a relatively historically new concept and way of thinking about it yeah definitely I mean I I cite um, a really amazing book called The Colonization of Time and there's some great very granular accounts in that book of um, of these kind of moments where you know British colonial time sense arrived somewhere and encountered like an existing very different sense of time um, and so I think those clashes are really interesting to revisit because you see something that we now take for granted in a moment when it was not taken for granted. There were examples like the fact that the Sabbath punctuated week um, would only extend as far as the audible range of a mission bell. Like it was that sort of like idea of regular, you know, subdivided uh, work time was was the was the exotic species of time basically in those cases. And um, and of course like that knowing that doesn't necessarily change the fact that you like live, we, we live in that time now, but mm -hmm. I do think that it's, um, it is sort of the history that you have to go back to when you're thinking about why it's this concept of time is money is so sticky. Well, and it helps you destabilize the sort of common notion of time. This is the hours of the clock, which then you do in a lot of other different ways throughout the book too. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. And I mean, something that I found really fascinating as I was writing it was that there's this kind of paradox that on the one hand, you know, trying trying to think about things like the fact that time and space are are not actually, can't really be separated or um, trying to think about sundial time as being, you know, as real as clock time. On the one hand, that feels abstract and difficult to do. But on the other hand, sometimes it feels like it's the easiest thing to do because all you have to do is just look around. I mean, you had that beautiful description like at the beginning of looking at, at the hills. Um, and I love um, Marsha Bjornerud, the geologist who I quote, she has that term timefulness of like mm. looking around and seeing that the world is, is full of and made of time. Um, and so I think that I, I really love the fact that you can sort of make everyday observations, for example, like picking one tree to pay attention to over an entire year and how that actually makes it very easy to access this notion of time that is not uniform, uh, that has, you know, identifiable stages, but they're not, they don't have these kind of like hard container lines. Mm -hmm. uh, and even like, you know, the, the Oakland Rose Garden that a lot of How to Do Nothing was based in, in the, in the winter, there are no roses, but you know that they're coming, like that sense of time. Yeah. And I just want to let you know, I'm going to have you lead our listeners through an unfreezing uh, of things exercise after the break. <laughs> We're talking about how to rethink how we think about time by road tripping around the Bay Area with Jenny O'Dell, author of Saving Time, Discovering a Life Beyond the Clock, and also the author of How to Do Nothing, Resisting the Attention Economy. Love to hear from you. Who or what has made you rethink the way you were taught about time. You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Email forum at kqed.org, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, KQED Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. More with Jenny O'Dell right after the break. Star One Credit Union provides you with the tech, tools, and terms to control your money and your lifestyle. Simple, seamless, everyday financial services and solutions. Online and mobile banking backed by the latest technology. Great rates on home, auto, and solar loans. And real people providing real assistance when you need it. At Star One, they always put you first. Become a member at StarOne.org or visit any of their Bay Area locations. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. You see the world as you experience it, but you can only experience so much firsthand. That's where the BBC comes in. Think of them as providers of information and inspiration, entertainment and engagement, and stories that connect us beyond borders. They don't care if they tell a story first, so long as they're the first to tell it right. Because the best stories don't tell you what to think. They're made to make you think. Get the world's stories on the new BBC.com. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We've got Jenny O'Dell author of Saving Time, Discovering a Life Beyond the Clock, and of course also the surprise bestseller, How to Do Nothing, Resisting the Attention Economy. Um, I want you, Jenny, to lead us through this exercise you describe in the book as unfreezing something in time, but I think that requires you to tell us about one particular branch of a California buckeye tree in Oakland. Yes. Um, so... Yes, unfreezing something in time is my phrase for picking, basically picking something very specific and 
revisiting it and sort of paying attention to all of the minute changes that happen in it for as long as possible. Uh, for me, it's been three years pretty much of paying attention to this one branch of a buckeye tree. I think buckeyes have a really interesting relationship to time in that they go dormant for much of the year. Um, I remember before I knew much about them, when I would see them in the mountains, I would I would think something was wrong. I would think all oh, the trees were dead um, <laughs> because they they look sort of bare before the other trees do. So, um, so there is one in this park that I happen to walk through all the time. And there's kind of a branch that sticks out like closest to the, to the path. So it's easiest for me to pay attention to. Um, and it's, yeah, it's really just like picking that as a focal point. Um, you know, that tree, you know, in this example, it, it has a, a little tiny bud for much of the winter. And then at some point it starts to grow, you know, bigger, it turns green. And then all these things start happening really fast. Like, the leaves, you know, the the leaves of the bud kind of peel back, and then these other leaves come out. You start to see the uh, the flower bits come out. Those open. There's an amazing smell that I associate very strongly with that part of the year, um, and I look forward to. I'm looking forward to right now. Um, and then you know the leaves start to wither. Um, they get crispy, and then it grows these kind of poisonous seed pods that are very strange um, that fall off and roll down. But um, but what I note in the book is that that none of that is really um, uniform. So like the it's not mm. happening. That process is not happening in the same way or at the same rate across that little grove, mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. or even in one tree. So if you look at like one leaf, right, like the way the yellow is moving across the leaf, um, like so. I guess you know that gives you some idea of like how minute I think it requires you to have your attention be, yeah. but. Um, it's, it's, it's also exhilarating because it's kind of like where you thought you saw nothing. There is actually like quite a bit happening. Yeah. And I was, um, in the book, you use, uh, this guy, Peric, his, his, uh, this incredible word, infraordinary. So not extraordinary, but infraordinary <laughs> to describe kind of the things that go uh, uh, unnoticed or like below conscious attention. How, how would you define that for people? I feel like it's one of those ones like Zeitgeber that I just love. I want people to take away from the show. Yeah, it's, it's, I sort of define it as it's something that's so ordinary that it's actually hard to see. Um, he calls it what happens when nothing happens. Mm. So he, yeah, he basically does the exercise of um, unfreezing something in time. He has a book called An Attempt at Exhausting a Place in Paris. And he sits, at, you know, in different places around the same square in Paris and just notes down what's happening. And it almost sounds like a police blotter or something like it's just like a 67 bus goes by, you know, a child drops his ice cream. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, it's it. there are not even really full sentences. <laughs> and uh, and and yet like that's the, these places or the square like really kind of comes alive through just that account. Um, and at the in the introduction of that book, he he sort of lists like known landmarks around that area and then says like I'm not interested in those because they're known like people do pay attention to those like I'm interested in you know what what happens when nothing happens like he's basically trying to pay attention to the thing that's so right under your nose that it's it's almost difficult to identify okay listeners you have heard about unfreezing something in time you've heard about this concept of the infraordinary wherever you are right now you're in your car, you're staring out your window, you know, you're in your garage, you're listening. 
I want to see if you can spend a little time while we're talking to just notice something infraordinary or unstuck in time, unfrozen in time, sorry, um, in your space there. And then send us a little note, if you can, forum at kqed.org, or you can you know, hit it on Twitter, KQED Forum. If you think you could describe something infraordinary live on the radio, give us a call, 866-733-6786. This feels like a quiet exercise, though, so maybe you want to write it out. Um, I want to ask you, before we get to some calls uh, and comments, I want to ask you about this um, trip that you took to the beach in Pescadero, and you look at some pebbles, and you write this. Make no mistake— They are neither signs nor symbols of time. No, they really are two things at once. Seafloor from the last ice age and future sand. And maybe you could, this this is where you can explicate, what do you mean when you say time is rocks? (laughs) I mean, I think uh, rocks, um, you know, especially in a place like that beach, which has, in addition to those pebbles, uh, layers of rock that have been tilted upwards. So as you're walking across the beach, time is basically going sideways. Like you're walking across geological history as you walk across the beach. Um, Again, you get that intuitive sense of like all you're looking at is is history and and what has happened to those rocks. Like as someone who, you know, I got really into geology for this book, like it, it really, I really started to realize that like the identity of a rock, like if you look up what is, you know, serpentinite or something like that, like, the description of what the rock is, is what happened to it. Um, Mm. It's how, it's how it formed, you know, and Uh then it's how, and then it's how it was weathered. And then, you know, it's like that there is like, that is the identity of the rock. Um, And so when you're looking at it, you are, you are just like also seeing what happened to it. And I, I kind of like try to draw this comparison later on in the book to like our own memories, right? Like your, your identity is also made out of the things that you remember and the things that you've experienced throughout time and that there's kind of no substitute. Um, like I, I borrow uh, this phrase from a Tetsching short story where he says experience is algorithmically incompressible. <laughs> like there is there is just that story, right? Like and that is sort of the identity, that is your identity, it's the identity of Iraq. Um, and so I think like that's, that's a very different idea from the, the rocks sort of just being like stuff that are just have been there, which is like kind of what I thought when I was at the beach thinking about this. I was like, what did I think they were? <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> what was I, what did, yeah, what did, what was I, what did I see when I was looking at them before I was thinking about them this way? I mean, I mean, to the argument of your book, people usually have a more utilitarian view of it. It's like, what are the pebbles of the beach? They're something to walk on, they're something to take, you know? They're not yeah. what they right. are. Right, right, right. Like, as opposed to just kind of like beholding them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Also, I, I try to keep a somewhat daily journal of the show. And I think today's is just going to say what the rock is, is what happened to it. Um, I love that. <laughs> That's an incredible <laughs> distillation uh, of trying to think about a different way about time. Um, Catherine in Oakland has a question that I think is going to open up some fun territory for us. Catherine? Hi. I'm wondering what Jenny thinks about daylight savings time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, I feel like this gets to so many. A, a simple question that opens up a very deep field of inquiry for you. Yes, definitely. So I am not a fan of daylight <laughs> savings because, and I don't think that anyone who has a baby 
is a fan of daylight savings uh, from what I from what I know from my friends. Um, but I also uh, I was really surprised when I uh, I read there's a book specifically about the history of daylight savings in the U.S. Um, and it was I, I'm I'm blanking on the name right now, but it was it's so funny. Like I was surprised by how funny this book was. And the reason it was so funny is that the history is so farcical. It's like the sort of varied interests, questionable, like, you know, um, intentions behind like why daylight savings was even put into practice in the U S and how messy it was and like Mm -hmm. how hard it was to get everyone on the same schedule. Um, and even now, right. There's still disagreement. Um, it's like, I I don't know. It's you sort of have to laugh (laughs) like the, like the impossibility of this task. And then just, um, but I think, you know, I, I'm not a fan of it because I, you know, as I think is like clear in the book, I really, I sort of like prefer these more um, like the more like embodied sense of time mm-hmm. um, over the abstract. And every time daylight savings happens, it's like, it's that clash, right? Like, oh, my body thinks it's this time, but the clock says it's this time now. And like, I don't enjoy that. <laughs> I think it makes a great part of your argument though, right? The book, by the way, is called Spring Forward, The Annual oh, okay, thank of you. Daylight Saving Time. Thank you. <laughs> and, <laughs> okay. um, the, you know, because whenever you see daylight savings time happen, you think like, oh, wait, the time it says on the clock is just made up. Like that is, yeah, exactly. there is the sun, there's my body, there's, but the time on the clock, you can literally just change the time on the clock. One day we all just do it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's almost like frighteningly arbitrary. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, we have, um, uh, th- this may also open up a little train for you. Bill tweets, as a retired secondary history teacher, I have unsatisfactory struggled for decades trying to figure out when the present ends and the past begins. Can you offer an answer? That's almost like a riddle, uh, Bill. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, that's, that's hard. I mean, I do in the conclusion, I kind of, I do talk about trying to feel the sort of gap between the past and the future. I mean, I think a lot of what I'm trying to do is recover a sense of like a dynamic present, like a present in which the future is still um, malleable because I was writing against the sort of determinists feeling of time and uh, particularly with regards to the climate. Um, and so I do think that there is, I, um, a, for me, like the, the present, I really associate with that feeling of, of possibility um, and like, and, and trying, I think what I'm trying to do is kind of like open up almost like a little pause in that where you could sort of like inhabit that long enough to imagine mm. something different than what what you would see if you just kind of extrapolated from everything that had already happened. Mm. You know, you had an image in the book that I thought was kind of a beautiful way of thinking about this around lava flow, right? Yeah. And that, like you could think of time as this this kind of lava flow being influenced by everything that went before it, but also you can't ever purely deterministically know, even looking back at the lava flow, where it'll go next. Right, right. And maybe that's a good, you know, like the present is sort of, the, the, for me, is like the live edge of the lava flow that's still it's still active um and yes it obviously has a relationship to the past you know path of the lava which was created by that live edge but it's still very much live and you yeah you don't know exactly where it's going to go we're talking about how to rethink 
Time by road tripping around the bay and in our minds with Jenny O'Dell, author of Saving Time, Discovering a Life Beyond the Clock, and of course also the author of How to Do Nothing, Resisting the Attention Economy. Love to hear from you. How have you seen time pass in the bay? Like, What are your tips for newcomers for understanding how time does pass around here and your tips for uh, for noticing in that way. You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Emails, forum at kqed.org. And let's go to Joni in Clayton. Welcome, Joni. Hi, how are you? Um, I wanted to just bring up as a Buddhist meditation um, practitioner that there's this interesting irony that I've noticed happening on retreat. Um, and so I'm asking about what you think about a complex relationship between religious practice mm. and time or schedule. So when I've been on retreat, there is this you know, focus on the present moment, and yet there is this what feels like the tyranny of the schedule. And uh, there are some teachers you know, who just sort of look at the schedule and rip it up and say, whatever. But a lot of times it's just you have to show up at this time and this time and this time. And... My experience is that my best practice is when I let go of all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, so it just seems very ironic that there is sort of schedule and time is encouraged, and yet the practice sort of feels like it's pointing towards discouraging that. Johnny, mm. interesting. I wonder point. if other religious practices have that tension mm-hmm. in your research. So interesting. Yeah. Thank you for that, Jenny. There's a lot of different ways you could take that one, Jenny. Yeah, I mean, I am. I'm thinking about. Um, the, it's a very brief mention, but um, at some point in the book, uh, I I quote um, uh, Abraham Joshua Heschel, the the rabbi, saying that um, the Sabbath is a palace we build in time. Um, and and I think, uh, although I don't talk that much about religion in the book, like I do think I was thinking a lot about routine and ritual, mm. and I think there's it's like it it can go either way right like I can see a ritual structuring time in a way that would allow someone actually to rest in the spaces that are created like say in that palace right Mm -hmm. um but I could also see a way in which it it you feel like harried like if it's not appropriate to like what you're trying to do Mm -hmm. it doesn't allow the practice to kind of breathe um, if you always feel like you're, you know, moving on to the next thing, which I think is like how clock time feels, you know, just secular clock time feels a lot of the time, right? It's like you're always being rushed to the next thing. But I do think that there is, I think there's potential for, and, and I think this is maybe the reasoning behind a lot of, you know, like spiritual rituals is like this feeling of like moving through stages mm-hmm. of some kind of activity and like maybe each one of those stages is supposed to mean something different or or bring up you know different associations i was also thinking in the context of your book Joni's experience describes kind of a tension between this religious practice and the experience economy that kind of underlays a lot of that now where you need to if you would like to have that time away from waged labor and other things, then you have to sort of purchase that time so that you can have it outside of your, your kind of normal life. Yeah. And I've also heard, you know, um, that there's, 
in with like Buddhist retreats and, and things like that, there's also like that uh, related irony of like someone trying to like get the most out of it, <laughs> like, you know, like have it like be something that actually like helps them optimize their life rather than as something that actually like functions as like an interruption mm. in their usual experience of time. Yeah. Um, got some uh, beautiful little um, comments and, and passages uh, coming in. Judd writes in to say, I'm, I'm 80 years old. Growing up in Denver, Colorado at night, I'd lay in my backyard staring into the starry sky. I felt an immense sense of unknowable time. Years later, as a teenager, I vowed as an artist to live by my own time clock. I soon entered Bohemia and needed money. Being broke pulled me for a while into the 24-hour capitalist clock time. Now I'm involved with descendants of Willowa Bandnez, Purse Chief Joseph, in a book project whose subtitle is 10,000 Years and Counting. Um, you know, as you were working on this book, I assume you encountered many people who you'd be like, I'm working on a book about time, and they had their own sense of having broken free of time. Do you remember any of those stories? Yeah, I, I mean, one of them is is in the book. Uh, I'm quoting my friend, um, Sophia Cordova, who's an amazing uh, Bay Area-based artist, uh, but she talks about doing the quarantena, which is like a, a Latin American ritual for, um, you know, after you have a child and you're basically, I I can't remember the number of days, but uh, you, you're you basically just four, I think it's, yeah. Well, that make, that would make sense, right? <laughs> um, and uh, and so it's just like you you and the baby and you don't leave. Um, and she, I, I have this huge block quote of hers because it's such a beautiful description of how how time felt for her and for them um and how it's sort of like being attentive to the rhythms of this other living being um just like changed the shape of her experience and that she's almost like nostalgic for it like she's been looking for that experience of time in other places the physical experience of reassembling your body. That was the line from that that I took down. I love that. It's very beautiful. We are talking with Jenny O'Dell, author of Saving Time, Discovering a Life Beyond the Clock, taking some of your questions and talking about the book. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more right after the break. Star One Credit Union provides you with the tech, tools, and terms to control your money and your lifestyle. Simple, seamless, everyday financial services and solutions. Online and mobile banking backed by the latest technology. Great rates on home, auto, and solar loans. And real people providing real assistance when you need it. At Star One, they always put you first. Become a member at StarOne.org or visit any of their Bay Area locations. Star One Credit Union in your best interest. You see the world as you experience it, but you can only experience so much firsthand. That's where the BBC comes in. Think of them as providers of information and inspiration, entertainment and engagement, and stories that connect us beyond borders. They don't care if they tell a story first, so long as they're the first to tell it right. Because the best stories don't tell you what to think. They're made to make you think. Get the world's stories on the new bbc.com. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking with Jenny O'Dell, author of Saving Time, Discovering a Life Beyond the Clock, as well as the author of How to Do Nothing, Resisting the Attention Economy. 
We're taking some of your um, questions as well, you know, and some of your comments and stories of how you've seen time pass in the Bay Area. You know, the things that you look for where you say like, oh, it's plum flower season now and time is going on or winter's coming or, you know, sun, sunshine's coming. Um, you can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. Have you been rethinking time for your own reasons for have you experienced a time that felt really different from being on, you know, the... 24-hour-a-day clock, you can give us a call to 866-733-6786. The email is forum at kqed.org, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, also KQED Forum. Um, one listener writes, Jenny, I love that. I love this comment. Um, it's so small, but it's so interesting. A listener writes, doing the dishes while listening to the show, I stopped to write this, feeling the heat from my hands slowly decreases. Right? Like, when do you ever, like, pull your hands out of the hot dishwater and just pause for a minute to feel them cool down? That's amazing. That, I love that is an infraordinary observation, yes. I will say. Thank you to that listener. Um, Mike also writes, during COVID, I observed a single poppy plant every day, multiple times a day. I saw it change daily, open and close. And when it eventually transitioned, I was sad. But then I was happy when its offspring sprouted the subsequent season. Love that, Mike. That's so um, lovely. <laughs> I know. Isn't that lovely? I would say, Mike, we, we, we'd be friends. I actually set up a time-lapse camera a couple years ago to watch the poppies, like, opening and closing, and then realized oh, wow. I was dedicating too much time to that relative <laughs> to actually appreciating the flowers themselves, you know? Um, all right. Let's, um, let's go to uh, Suzette in Oakland. Welcome, Suzette. Good morning. Thanks for taking my call. Um, one of the things I think about is how different cultural groups perceive time and something that we call CP time, colored people's time. So when you're invited to a party, for example, it's one o'clock until there's usually not an ending time just because the party will go on as long as there are people there. But in this very Western way of viewing invitations in time, there's an end time to parties. So for me, if I say one o'clock is the start time, that means that people are coming to help prepare the meal together, that there's this community activity before there's going to be the eating of the meal. But then people who are more, um, you know, th that follow strict time rules are more like one o'clock is when it's time to eat and might yeah. perceive this not being ready to serve as being disrespectful or not respectful uh, of their time, mm -hmm. where when people come to my house and they're not prepared to help out with the meal, I just would rather they show up a lot later than to just be sitting around waiting to be mm -hmm. served. And then also when people end parties, like right at four, I'm always confused because I'm like, you know, the <laughs> I was just getting going. Yeah. <laughs> like, and so, you know, I'm just wondering if there hasn't been some study of how different cultural groups perceive time and how we might, you know, I don't know, bring some understanding about it, not being rude to be late, but maybe it's just part of someone's way um, yeah. rather than it being like against the host. And I just right. like to get some comment about what a great, what a great call, Suzette. Stay, stay with us. Yeah. Jenny, I know you have things to say about this. Yeah. So I, um, I talk a little bit about Filipino time because, uh, which I had to ask my, my half of my family is Filipino. So I had to ask around about like, about how late is that? And they said <laughs> the agreement seemed to be like an hour or more. So yeah. it's like, if, yeah, if you say something is like, yeah, two, it's like, is that two, two, or is that two Filipino time too? Um, and I think there's, there's also probably similar things around like ending 
you know, ending gatherings. Um, and that comes up in the chapter where I kind of talking about languages of time, like comparing it to a language um, in similar ways that there can be language barriers um, and that it's like possible to say one thing in a language and not in another, I think, um, because that's basically what it is, right? Like when you're asking the question, like, which one is it? <laughs> um, and I, I think that if there's something really beautiful about the fact that um, although there is this dominant sense of, of clock time and sort of yeah, the Western sense of punctuality, that all of these other languages of time are still very much alive and they're kept alive through through the through the speaking of the language, right? Through like the practice. Um, so like as I note in the book, like if you have a bunch of people who are on Filipino time, it's not Filipino time anymore, it's just time. <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. Like it's its own sort of center. But I also found it interesting that um, there was an essay um by a Filipino graphic I think it was a graphic designer who um, on Medium saying that, you know, he was not a fan of Filipino time because he thought that it it was like a bad look because um, he's a freelancer, right? And he was like, we want to look like we are like as, you know, like Filipino creatives or whatnot, like we want to be, we want to look punctual to the rest of the world um, because it, he's thinking about it like, you know, I need to make money, right? So I think like there is like, it's, it's true that these ideas, you know, these languages of time like coexist, but then there's also kind of like, you do run up against like one of these ways of thinking has more power than the other. Mm, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Hey, Suzette, thank you so much. Uh, that's just such a great, great point for this discussion. Um, I wanted to ask you about another type of time that's kind of socially distinct, which was um, what was called in the book, I think it was Sarah Hendren, um, calling Crip Time. Can you talk a, a mm. little bit about, you know, how, how what, what that said to you as distinct from some of these other notions of, you know, socially uh, determined times like Filipino time? Yeah. So I think like, you know, when you're looking at any system of values, it's really, it's really, really valuable to look at um, anyone for whom that system was not built is going to have a very interesting perspective on it, right? So if you're disabled, like this, this notion of, um, like an industrial sense of time in which you you're you kind of turn the switch on and you're working and then you turn it off at appropriate times um, and it's a, it's pretty unforgiving in terms of the body um, not just for disabled people but for anyone um, but I think particularly for someone who who really can't participate in that and really can't think about time that way they they off like that perspective is is very um, is what can really help you see outside of that and Sarah Hendren in her book. Uh, what can a body do talks about how her son who has down syndrome like basically gave her that perspective like she saw through him and the way that he was moving through through the world how much those not just timetables but the idea um of kind of milestones for a child right like that you're supposed to hit at particular times and the way that a very sort of economic uh notion of uh personhood and value is is present in schooling and like the way schooling is arranged um that for her just like seeing him encounter that but also seeing like his sources of joy and his sources of meaning how different they were and how sort of non-competitive they were is what is like the door for her to mm. exit this uh notion of time that is very instilled in all of us and kind of look back at it from the outside and uh, and ask the question like is the is the industrial i think she says is the industrial clock built for bodies at all like anyone's body, because you think about like, if you're caring for, you know, ailing parents, as she notes, or you're, you know, like, I don't know, we live in bodies, right? Like, you know, uh, 
you, you like you're taking care of a child, you're taking care of yourself, um, you feel different at different times. Like, is it actually humane for anyone? Not just, you know, not just thinking about disabled yeah, folks. Right. Um, earlier, we made this uh, call for people to just wherever they were as listeners to, to maybe write us a little note about something infraordinary, right? These things that normally go underneath or, or we just don't don't notice with our, our conscious attention. Um, we have a few more of them. Uh, well, one in particular, this one's so good. Um, Kirsten writes, I have been listening while dusting under furniture, not something I do often, and I'm recognizing the span of time held within the dust, similar to how it shows in sedimentary rocks, though on a smaller scale. The dust contains old and new particles, both from the inside and outside world, and the hair and skin particles of loved ones and pets who have visited my house. Come on, Kirsten. Kirsten. <laughs> I love that so much. That is so good. <laughs> dusting will never be the same, you know? Yes. Yes. Um, dusting will become a sacred activity now. <laughs> yes, that's right. I mean, but it actually, I in that moment, I, I really yeah. feel it. Yeah. Um, on Antonio, in a kind of this is a really interesting perspective too, Jenny. Uh, Antonio writes, "We have a saying in hazardous industries: ignored safety concerns become landscape, meaning if you ignore something for a while, you no longer see it." We bring attention to these things by bringing new people in or changing people's role. Bringing new people in is a way to see things with fresh eyes and works in any setting. I have to say. Ignored safety concerns become landscape might actually be also another thing I enter in my daily journal on this show. Oh, um, me too. <laughs> right? That is, yeah. um, for those who don't know, um, Jenny also once had a residency at the at Waste Management, right? Yeah, at Recology, which at I think Recology. is officially a recycling center, but it's colloquially known as the dump. The dump. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So yeah. you spent some time in hazardous settings. That's all. That's all. Um, yeah. Sasha writes in to say, holding my six-month-old who is wiggling his way out of my lap and onto the floor. It feels like his older brother was born both yesterday and a century ago. Having young children has forced me to embody time more than ever. Caretaking at this level almost forces me into presence itself. Have I slept eight hours or have I slept enough? Do I need more food or do I wait until dinner at six? Am I playing hide-and-seek now or am I thinking about our next time-based responsibility? Mm, so lovely yeah um last last one of these and then maybe we can you can reflect on them um as a whole this one is this one's pretty intense for everyone um valerie writes uh after the death of my son i wrote this on my blog how is it that time is still moving so quickly i have so much more of it available to me now i thought i would be more aware of it but that just isn't happening it's like time is a river. If you're trying to swim upstream, you're very aware of the speed of the current. And if you just give yourself up to the current and float with it, you aren't as aware that you're moving downstream even faster than you were before. I guess that's where I am now. I'm floating with the current rather than trying to swim upstream by constantly being up against the clock. Wow. <laughs> um, yeah, those are all so beautiful. I'm so like... I'm so grateful <laughs> to everyone um, for for submitting those, and I think they all really speak to to the the cycle, just the psychological variability of time, which has so much to do with, I think, your attitude towards it, and and just and other things, you know, like what is what has happened, how old you are, and I there's a a sociologist Barbara Adam who I quote in the middle of the book, who, you know, she talks about how this encroachment of 
a very standardized uniform feeling of time and economic time. But then she goes on to say that, like, we know that that's not, we intuitively know, like, in our bodies and as social beings, that that is not what time is. Um, and I think she says complexity reigns supreme. Mm. And I think, like, that, that idea of complexity, um, sometimes I like to think of the same way no point in a landscape is the same. I mean, you can try to like pave over it and, and make it look standard, right? But but actually no point in space is, is the same. And there is a landscape that time is also that way. Mm-hmm. Um, like I think of, when I think of like things that have happened to me in my life, there are like the sort of mountains and valleys and the significant points, you know, and there were like the, there was like the big open plain. And then there was the very like thorny, you know, thicket that I had to get through. <laughs> and, and the time felt very different in all of those um time places yeah Yeah. you know i mean i think one of the things that's come across in the show is people showing us that while they recognize that standard uniform time exists they also have access to these other registers and i wanted to you do have a, a sort of offer for how we could build on that sense and it comes down to it can be summed up in one line time is beans can you explain that for people? Unpack it for people. <laughs> yes yes so um that is referring to an experience that i had actually while i was writing the book um i was visiting a friend who was in her 70s in her garden and uh she was planting some beans that were descended from beans she had bought 20 years ago she didn't she does not remember where she got them she grew them. They were delicious. She gave them to her friends. Everyone loved them, um, but no one knew where to get them, um, herself included. Uh, the, some of those friends grew them to maturity and gave them back to her, um, which is why she has them. They also probably spread across the country, is, is her guess. And uh, when I was talking to, to her about it, uh, we were kind of reflecting on how that how non-transactional that was. Like There was an exchange between her and her friends, she did give them something and they gave her something back, but they weren't, it wasn't the sort of zero sum game. Like I give you some and I have less. Um, and, and there's also just the sort of physical fact of the bean, which contains, you know, as her beans did like this lineage, but they're also seeds. So they contain the possibility of, of future beans. Um, and so that, you know, hence me sort of like semi jokingly, like wondering if time is not money, time is beans just as like a different metaphor, because I think like, I'm, I'm so interested in like what happens or what becomes possible when you don't think of like yourself as having individual time units, right. For yourself. Like I have mine and you have yours. And if I give you some of mine, I will have less. Mm -hmm. Like, is there a way of thinking about time that's, that's more generative and social and recognizes the fact that like you might've done something for me like years ago that now is like fruiting, right? And is having some kind of consequence in my life. And now I can give some of that time back to you. And that it's this much more of like a, um, almost like ecological feeling back and forth. Mm. You know, um, Barbara writes in, this is another one of these versions of time. Um, As someone with ADHD, I learned I have something called time blindness, which is hard to explain because I have always lived it. We see the present and then a squishy future. That isn't the present, but it doesn't matter if the future is two days or two years from now. Time can also be nonlinear for people with ADHD. We're always late doing things last minute. I'm working on finding a positive side to this. Maybe your guest has an answer. Hmm. Yeah, I did. I, I have read a little bit about time blindness and I find it super fascinating. Um, I think that 
like if there, I would say that if you were looking for a way to think about it positively, maybe just thinking about, you know, there's this term that I use in the book, chronodiversity, which like I'm mostly using to um, describe like just in time itself, like how it would feel for one person, that time would feel different at different times. But I think there's also like related to that, the idea chronodiversity could also mean like how time, the same you know period of time is experienced by different people or how different people approach time. And I think one one really nice thing about looking at the history of the, the, the regular um, clock-based interval version of time is that you start to realize that it's very historically specific and that it's just one among many, many understandings of time um, over history and just across like people in the present. And so I think maybe thinking of like celebrating your own sense of time as just one of many of these different ways of understanding time that's actually very, um, it's it's special because it's not that sort of, yeah. it's it's not that like standard way. Yeah. Jenny, thank you so much for bringing out such great reflections and ideas for people and, and moments. Thanks for leading us through this unfreezing exercise. <laughs> uh, Jenny O'Dell is the author of Saving Time. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It was lovely. <laughs> Last couple of comments to go out on. Um, Katie writes, I know that tending plants and noticing plants is one of the ways I track the year, watching the hills go green, then gold, then brown, then green again. And I especially love that moment when all the wisteria in the East Bay bloom at once. That is a great moment. And Matt writes, interestingly, there is a cobweb at eye level in front of my workspace, connecting the window to the wall in the very corner of my very small space. It is in constant motion, although I don't feel any drafts in this room myself. What on earth has been happening here and for how long? That's a good one to go out on. <laughs> Thank you so much, Matt. This Hour of Form is produced by Caroline Smith, Blanca Torres, Grace Wan, and Catherine Monaghan. Marlena Jackson-Rotondo is our engagement producer. Judy Campbell's lead producer. Our engineer is Danny Bringer. Our interns are Lulu Ralda and Jericho Reininger. Our vice president of news is Ethan Tovin Lindsay, and our chief content officer is Holly Kernan. We've been joined by Jenny O'Dell. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another Hour of Form Ahead with Mina Kim. In the time Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. At Star One Credit Union, everything they do is in your best interests. They want to make banking easy and help your money grow. So Star One invests in technology to provide you with the best digital banking experience. Need a mortgage, auto, or solar loan? Their rates are stellar. At Star One, they're all about building lasting relationships by providing financial products and services that put you first. Become a member at StarOne.org or drop by any of their Bay Area locations. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. You see the world as you experience it, but you can only experience so much firsthand. That's where the BBC comes in. Think of them as providers of information and inspiration, entertainment and engagement, and stories that connect us beyond borders. They don't care if they tell a story first, so long as they're the first to tell it right. Because the best stories don't tell you what to think. They're made to make you think. Get the world's stories on the new BBC.com. Hey, KQED listeners. I'm right now as podcast host, Pendarvis Harshaw, dropping a line to invite you to a summer evening 
of live contemporary jazz at the KQED headquarters in San Francisco, Thursday, June 20th at 7 p.m. We've got a stacked lineup of dope musicians, including vocalist Jamie Z, saxophonist Lydia Rodriguez, and harpist Destiny Muhammad. And Newsflash is the closing event for our podcast. We've had a great run, so help us celebrate the end of this chapter. Get tickets to Liner Notes Live at kqed.org events.